Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. This is the Loving Liberty program, and glad you could be a part of it. Got some weighty topics to to talk about today. In fact, I hope they are the kind of topics that actually leave you better equipped to go forth and proclaim truth, or at least live up to truth as you understand it. And one of the things I'm going to take on here in this hour is a sacred cow, which has kind of come to be accepted as conventional wisdom by a lot of people. You ready for this? You're sitting down. Because it might get a little controversial. Hang on. There are a lot of politicians out there right now, many of whom are campaigning for the presidency of the United States, who maintain with a straight face that this nation was built on the back of slaves. Slavery is what made this nation rich. And if you understand that, well, we're dealing with, um, you know, Marxist kind of ideology, which already looks at the rich with uh, with a very jaded eye, well, whatever they have, they didn't earn it. They got it by exploiting people. Then it's just kind of a natural thing to think, well, of course, they're going to accuse uh, the rich of getting that way because there was slavery. But does that really hold up to examination? I have an article here published on the American Institute for Economic Research's website. That's AIER.org. It's by Vincent, Vincent Geloso. Listen to what he has to say here. He says, in the past few decades, a new subfield of history has emerged, and that's the history of capitalism. The subfield is widely popular, or widely popular in the, in the media as a result of hugely influential books, such as those of Sven Beckert and Edward Baptist. Now, these two particular authors tie the peculiar institution of slavery in American history to capitalism. Oh, don't look so surprised. Come on. Of course, Marxism would want to tie slavery to capitalism. Many media pundits, as witnessed by recent articles in the New York Times and Vox, have jumped on the works of these authors to claim slavery was the building block of the American economy and it made America richer. Now, in this case, Vincent Geloso says, look, to make this case, these scholars invoke three facts. First, the southern states enjoyed relatively faster growth than the free northern states. Secondly, slavery was immensely profitable to slaveholders. Third, the rapid increases in slave productivity as measured by cotton picked per slave meant that cotton output exploded. And from this, a causal claim is made. Slavery made America rich because increasing slave productivity increased profits and fastened economic growth. Now, with the exception of whether or not the South grew faster than the North, which is debatable to some degree, there is little to dispute on a factual basis. However, it is impossible to infer that America was made richer from these facts. In fact, when interpreted with the light of economic theory, the second and third facts actually suggest that the reverse is true. America was made poorer because of slavery. So let's go back and walk it through a little bit of history here. And again, these are the words of Vincent Geloso. He says, one of the most cited pieces of evidence is that the South enjoyed rapid economic growth before emancipation. 
The logic is if the South grew faster than the North, slavery, which was so important to the Southern economy, must have been the contributing factor. Now, most of the evidence for this rests on the works of Robert Goleman and Richard Easterlin, who constructed income estimates for the period after 1840. In their pioneering work, Time on the Cross, Robert Fogel and Stanley Angerman used this data to show that between 1840 and 1860, the South grew faster than the North, 1.7% per annum versus 1.3%. However, this is a claim with shaky foundations. First, the benchmark year of 1860 overstates the level of income per capita. The cotton crop that year was higher than normal, and the effect from this is mild, but it's enough to shave off a few decimal points to the initial estimates of growth for the southern states. Economic historian Gerald Gunderson also suggested that the census of 1840, which was used to estimate output in that year, was also known to be one of the most poorly conducted in census history. This led, in his opinion, to an inaccurate starting point that also contributes to overstating Southern growth between 1840 and 1860. Secondly, economic historian Jeffrey Hummel identified a series of weak points in the national account estimates of Galman and Easterlin. These weak points relate to how the South was defined, how some states, some slave states actually, were actually wrongly allocated to the North, how certain new states like Texas had overstated incomes, how the income from service sectors was underestimated in some regions and overestimated in others, the value of subsistence goods given to slaves and the price deflators used to estimate output. I think it's complicated fast. Hummel proposed revisions to adjust for some of the problems he exposed. Those revisions reduced the gap in growth rates between the region. Third, taken separately, none of the different regions of the South experienced faster growth than the different regions of the North. The Northeast and North Central enjoyed growth rates per per capita income equal to 1.7% and 1.6% between 1840 and 1860, while the South Atlantic, East-South Central, and West-South Central regions enjoyed growth rates of 1.2%, 1.3%, 1.0% during the same period. Now, this apparent anomaly is explained by internal migration. Southerners moved from where incomes below average to where they were above average. And these movements in population, when aggregated for the two wild regions, created the impression of fast growth in the South. However, it's worth pointing out that the higher-income states of the South grew more slowly than the higher-income states of the North. Lastly, he says, if we extend the time period considered, the picture that emerges is quite different. Peter Lindert and Jeffrey Williamson reconstructed income statistics between 1675 and 1860, in order to, to, in order to check out the different regions of the United States and compare them with Great Britain. They found that between 1675 and 1774, incomes per capita in the southern states fell by roughly 15%, while the middle colonies stagnated and New England enjoyed a mild increase. Thereafter, the southern economy grew, but at a slower pace than the north, with economic growth standing at 1.94% per annum in New England between 1800 and 1860, while it stood at 1.66% and 0.90% in the mid-Atlantic and South Atlantic states. Similarly, he says Robert Margo's work on wages between 1820 and 1860 showed that wages for common labor in the Northeast increased faster than in the South Atlantic and South Central regions, although wages in the Midwest did not increase as impressively. Adding to this, the wealth estimates of scholars like Alice Hansen-Jones 
we find that the South actually lost ground relative to the North from the beginning of the colonial era. It did grow, but the northern states performed better. And the sum of these points suggests that we ought to be careful about making inferences from this fact. However, even if that point was a certain one, it would not say much about well-being. So this brings us to productivity and profitability. Do not confuse output with utility. The two other facts that slavery slavery was immensely profitable and that slave productivity increased are not debated. Scholars accept them as true. In fact, all of, of all the claims contained in time on the cross, these are the two that survived the test of time. However, one cannot infer that slavery made America richer from them. In fact, these two points these two facts point in the opposite direction. See, under slavery, Slaves received as wages, for lack of a better term, only the subsistence items that their owners allowed them to consume. That's a poor form of compensation. As a counterfactual, imagine a world where slaves were free and ask yourself this question. What quantity of labor would have been provided for the utility derived from these subsistence items? So it's hard to arrive at a convincing number. However, it is clear that whatever the quantity of labor provided when induced solely by compensation it would have been less than the quantity of labor coerced by slave owners. Now consider the flip side of that counterfactual market. If slave owners had to convince free workers to work for them, they could, have not, they could only have induced them to do so via higher wages. And this is not only a counterfactual that includes a quantity of work, it also includes the quality of work. In free situations, workers in unpleasant jobs tend to be offered higher wages to compensate for the inconvenience. That's why backbreaking work, all else being equal, tends to be better remunerated than physically easy work. It also explains why I've stuck with radio all these years, but that's another story. As long as there was a difference between the value of what a slave produced and the value of subsistence, there was a transfer from slaves to slave owners. This is why economic historians like Gavin Wright write that slave-based commerce remained central, not because slave plantations were superior as a method of organizing production, but because slaves could be put to work on sugar plantations that could not have attracted free labor on economically viable terms. But here comes the rub. This increased physical outputs. So in economics, dollar signs are often used to mimic utility. It's because models teach students about utility, and they implicitly embed an assumption about personal freedom and agency. If people are free to take prices as they are, then those prices can be translated into information about utility in a very straightforward manner. It's why economists frequently emphasize how well statistics about the gross domestic product, or GDP, which rely on market prices to be calculated, speak to human well-being. The quantity produced and measured are reflective of utility. As such, the changes in one will be reflected by changes in the same direction in the other. But in the presence of coercion, this is not necessarily the case. All the statements that economic students are taught still remain true. However, it's no longer possible to infer utility as easily from reported prices. If one's coerced into working more than he would have at the compensation offered, he will increase economic output. More labor, more output. However, at that level of compensation, he would have preferred to work less and take more leisure time. we got to take a quick break. We'll pay some bills. We'll be back with more on Loving Liberty.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Hey, if you want to join the conversation, do so at 801-254-1640. Right now, I'm sharing with you an article from the American Institute for Economic Research. And it is challenging the notion that this country became rich on the basis of slavery. And this is a pretty convincing little piece here that uh, is written by Vincent Geloso. He does a pretty good job of, of taking down some of the historical claims that, well, now, you know, it was all built on the back of slaves. One of the things that he points out here is that when it comes to uh, dollar signs mimicking utility, the models that teach students about utility implicitly embed this assumption about personal freedom and agency. And, and he explains, this means people are, if people are free to take prices as they are, you can translate those prices into information about utility in a very straightforward manner. That's why people use, or economists use GDP to try to, uh, to show people how we're doing, what our well-being is. But he says, in the presence of coercion, that's not necessarily the case. All the statements that economic students are taught remain true, but it's no longer possible to infer utility as easily from reported prices. Because if you're coerced into working more than you would have at the compensation that you're being offered, you will increase economic output, more labor, more output. However, he says at that level of compensation, he would have preferred to work less and take more leisure time. That's why economists like Joram Barzell and Stefano Finnoatea consider slavery as a tax on leisure rather than a tax on labor, as that person would have derived more utility from leisure than from work at the offered compensation. So the coercion changes output in a manner that divorces it from the change in utility, greater output, lower utility. In such a divorce, he says, the coercion of a greater labor supply creates a deadweight loss. In other words, people would have gained more utility without the coercion. And that deadweight loss can be approximated and actually given a monetary value that does speak to its utility. The amplitude of that loss is the extent to which Americans were made poorer by the institution of slavery. And here's where he says this deadweight loss serves to resolve two conundrums. The first is that it explains the institution's profitability and viability. Slave owners used the inputs they had as efficiently as possible and extracted important profits. However, this says little about living standards as the level of those profits reflects the extent of the deadweight loss. Thus, the institution may have increased output in ways that made slaveholders rich, as it did, but it made Americans worse off. The second resolved conundrum relates to the finding of Fogel and Angerman that southern slave farms were more productive than northern free farms, and slave productivity increased, importantly, during the antebellum period. Fogel and Angerman argued initially in time on the cross and later in without consent or contract that this was the result of economies of scale involved in plantation farming. Large plantations were simply more efficient than small plantations. That finding in their work was hotly debated on methodological grounds. However, if even one remain even if one remains agnostic on the methodological choices, that finding is unsurprising. The gang labor system under slavery, which generated the economies of scale described by Fogel and Angerman, was adopted because it could extract it could best extract output from coerced workers. It doesn't deny the existence of a dead weight loss, it confirms it. 
And that resolution's only in reinforced when one stops being agnostic with regards to some of the methodological choices made by Fogel and Angerman. For example, the more recent evidence discussed by Jeffrey Hummel suggests that hours worked by slaves were greater, even at the low bound, than by free workers in the North. As Fogel and Angerman had argued, argued greater intensity of labor per hour rather than more hours of labor per day explained, explained the productivity advantage, finding that both intensity and quantity were higher, only piles it on. So what was the dead weight loss of slavery? Well, using data on estimates of earnings of free workers, higher rates for slaves, which are better at approximating the marginal value to slave owners of an extra slave, and subsistence consumption taken from the core texts on the economics of American slavery, Jeffrey Hummel estimated that dead weight loss, and he placed it between 52 and $190 million in 1860, with the smaller amount representing 5% of total income in the region. In other words... The loss in utility of forcing slaves to provide more labor than they otherwise would have had a value between 52 and 190 million. But, but that's not the whole sum of deadweight losses. In southern states, the enforcement of slavery was not fully undertaken by homeowners. The states mandated slave patrol duty for free whites. This relieved slave owners of the cost of enforcement while they kept the rewards from coercion which were spread over a large population. The mandatory duty was a tax in the form of labor in kind. In some states, there were actually taxes to finance the patrols. Hummel estimated the cost of or the sum of enforcement costs in his, that brought his estimates to between 64 and 210 million dollars. Now, this represents at most a fifth of the southern economy in terms of inefficiency. And this remains a conservative estimate as there was also deadweight loss from forcibly reallocating non-slave labor towards patrolling which is hard to measure. This addition is useful as it shows that the dead weight loss was not contained to slaves. It actually extended to poor non-slaveholding whites. Scholars such as Carrie Lee Merritt and Masterless Men have begun to highlight how the preservation of slavery necessitated boundaries that kept non-slaveholding whites poor, landless, and illiterate. While slaves bore the brunt of the harm done, it wasn't contained to them. And this explains why Hinton Rowan's helper, Hinton Rower helper's impending crisis was so popular, even in the South, even though it was racist and anti-slavery. It catered to another impoverished group. And it's clear that one cannot infer that America was made richer from the often used facts about growth and slavery. It's even clearer that America was made poorer by slavery. So, just so we're clear, he's not being an apologist for slavery in any regard. Slavery leaves a nasty legacy. And Vincent Geloso says, its preservation required the use of racist ideological constructs just to justify it. These constructs persist today, and since emancipation meant that incredible violence was directed towards African Americans. It also bred a class of rent seekers who continued their rent extraction efforts in the form of segregation laws and public goods funded by all, but whose use was restricted to whites. So to, those, to these items in the shadow of slavery, we must also add a poorer America. So I don't know what the takeaway is, if, if there is one at all. I just know that right now, 
there seems to be a very determined effort to we're refighting the cause of slavery. And I don't mean that somebody's trying to uh, to reinstate it. But it's really clear that somebody, at the very least, is trying to take a bold stand against it when it's been gone for ages. The civil rights aspects, even that battle has been won. It's not brave today to be against slavery. The time to be brave against it would I would be, I would say, in uh, that 1840 to 1860 timeline. Then it was actually risky. Following the war between the states, though, the slaves were all emancipated. Reconstruction and all the, the heartache that went along with that. It may have taken some brave, bravery for a person to stand up and, and to, to welcome the former slaves into full citizenship. But we have none of that today. I guess my point is simply this. The people who are still trying to milk a fence over an institution that has been out of existence longer than any of us have been alive. Are they really trying to right a wrong here? Or are they just trying to seek some kind of personal advantage politically? I know what my answer would be. I'm not telling you that that's what your answer should be, too. But I think it's a fair question to ask, and therefore, I'm asking it. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We'll be back right after this. Back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-254-1640 if you'd like to join in the conversation. So I, this is kind of a mild segue, but uh, since I was talking about slavery in the previous two segments, let's talk about Thomas Jefferson and Monticello. Okay, I'm not trying to hang something on Jefferson. Hey, you know, he was a slave owner, so we should hate him. I did see a very interesting article this morning from Grin, uh, Griffin Darty. Let me try that again. Griffin Daughtry. This was on uh, the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org. What the Tiny House Movement and Thomas Jefferson's Monticello have in common. Now, if you have ever seen a tiny house or if you have ever visited Monticello, you would probably be like, what? There's there's no comparison. Come on, a tiny house. You could put it on a trailer and basically move it from place to place, which, yeah, it's kind of the point. Monticello? Oof, not so. What a magnificent estate. But the article here says when Thomas Jefferson originally moved into the South Pavilion of his estate in 1770, it was little more than an incomplete two-bedroom brick building and a cleared mountaintop. Over the course of the next 38 years, the author of the Declaration of Independence would personally design and oversee the construction of his essay in architecture. The main house at Monticello, as it stands today, is a piece of architectural wonder. Its design embodies themes derived from both classical and Palladian styles of work. Now, while the Renaissance man himself was never formally trained as an architect, you can hardly tell 
as his home consists of numerous unique features, including a triangular pediment supported by Doric columns and his famous octagonal dome. Okay, every bit of that was right over my head, but I'll take their word for it. Inside, the walls are covered with a variety of objects that highlight the former president's interests and accomplishments. Even today, you can find one of the last remaining original artifacts from the Lewis and Clark expedition, a pair of elk antlers in the entrance hall. But just like the great Roman cities that heavily influenced the design of Jefferson's home, Monticello was not built in a day. Despite the fact that Jefferson amassed a great deal of debt by the time of his death, which can largely be attributed to debts he inherited from his father-in-law and his extensive list of hobbies, one can hardly argue that he failed to make sound economic choices with regard to his early years of homeownership. Look, people don't start through adult lives the way early Jefferson did anymore. Today, most young individuals leave college and either become renters pouring thousands of dollars a year into a property they'll never own, or they naively take advantage of artificially low interest rates and acquire a mortgage they can barely afford to pay off. But there is an alternative path, and it's very much akin to the homeowning path Jefferson took at the end of the 18th century. We're talking about tiny homes. The tiny house movement, as it's commonly referred to, is gaining unprecedented traction in the United States and abroad. After the 2008 housing crisis, many individuals found themselves questioning the value of their assets and the stability of the global economy. These tiny homes, among others, are in many ways a direct response to the monetary disaster. Now, believe it or not, Amazon actually sells these tiny homes, and they can be purchased for as little as $24,000. It's actually less than a lot of cars these days. Whereas there is no concrete definition of what a tiny house must be, there are some similarities among those that exist. Most tiny homes are smaller than 400 square feet, built on wheels, usually trailers, and powered by off-the-grid electrical systems. Now, many of these homes have also been designed to accommodate bizarre and remote locations. Ultimately, these tiny homes were designed by by their homeowners to achieve a variety of goals, like increasing one's financial independence, reducing their ecological footprint, fostering a minimalistic lifestyle, and maximizing their mobility. Now, before you stop reading and disregard tiny homes as just an absurd fad, after all, who'd want to live in such a small space? The author here says, let us consider how the, consider the economic validity of this technological innovation and how it relates to time preference. As Ludwig von Mises explained in Human Action, the value of time, in other words, time preference or the higher valuation of wanting sat- of want satisfaction in nearer periods of the future as against that in remoter periods, is an essential element of human action. It determines every choice and every action. There is no man for whom the difference between sooner and later does not count. The time element is instrumental in the formation of all prices of all commodities and services, end quote. So by exercising a low time preference, which means delaying the immediate gratification of having goods now as opposed to later, an individual can save and accumulate capital for the future. Capital saved through the discipline of practicing low time preference spending can then be invested in higher value goods without the cost of debt. This acknowledgement of time and our decision to trade it like a commodity by human beings, according to Hans Hermann Hoppe, is how we instituted a process of civilization. 
So investing in a tiny home, then, can be seen as just an additional stepping stone in the long process of affording one's dream home. No longer are individuals forced to make the drastic leap from renter to homeowner. By owning and living in this home for a few years, many of which can be designed for a fraction of the Amazon model mentioned above, you are capable of saving money that would otherwise be wasted on rent or spent on a mortgage. And it's also important to remember that not every tiny home has to stay a tiny home. Just like Thomas Jefferson, who moved into a tiny brick building, a tiny a tiny homeowner can start out with one of these homes on a plot of land and expand their home as they continue to save more of their wealth. And here Griffin Daughtry says, I'm not saying that everyone should go out and buy a tiny home or even suggesting that it's economically feasible for everyone, but he says it is definitely an option that every individual should consider in the face of a mortgage or renting. I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on that. Want to humor me? 801-254-1640. Look, I've I've lived through that uh, period of time where basically our homes became bigger and bigger and bigger. And and for a long time, it seemed like, you know, the the um, I want to say the average home or at least the average uh, type of home, residential home would have would have been what? There for a while, it was two-bedroom, three-bath. I think that went up, though, in the late 90s and through the early part of 2010, right up until about the crash of 2008. No, no, no. I need four bedrooms and three baths or, you know, five bedrooms or six bedrooms, you know, 4,000 square feet if it's going to be anything. And part of that is the perception of this is how people will know that I'm being successful. My house has this big of a square footage footprint, and so, therefore, you can you can rest assured I'm making it. But I have seen a lot of people who have downshifted in that time. And by downshifted, I mean they have said, you know what? We had the 5,000 square foot home. We had all the room that we needed and room to spare. And for some, it was like it was just too much. We couldn't keep it going. Not to mention the the costs of, I mean, you know, I, I know you're enjoying your air conditioning right now because it's pretty hot out. It's been pushing into the 90s pretty much every day for the last few weeks. Yeah, try to keep a nice big home cool, or better still, try to keep it warm in the wintertime. Now, some may look at these tiny homes and think, yeah, but this is swinging the pendulum way back too far the other way. And I have to wonder, by what criteria do we make that uh, determination? Oh, that's too little home. Now, my wife can actually make a pretty solid argument of, okay, we we have kids who have grown up and moved out of the home, and... When they come back to visit, we want to have room for them to come and stay with us. We don't want to have to put them up in an Airbnb somewhere or, you know, send them off to a hotel or anything like that. We want them to come and stay with us. That would be difficult, especially in a 400-square-foot tiny home, especially when you get a large number of people all hanging around there. But at the same time, I have felt for years that I'm getting more and more owned by my stuff, and there has to be a break here somewhere. Caller, welcome to Loving Liberty. Well, there's uh, high property tax to go along with that, and uh, you know, uh, high utility bills. And rest assured, the older you get, the sooner you're going to want to downsize because you can't maintain it anyway. These are good points, all of them. Uh, yeah, um, taxes seem to never go down, property taxes. 
I wonder if that's why some of the municipalities take such a dim view of, of these little homes or these little tiny sure. houses. We can't tax them nearly as much as we could if they'd build a McMansion. Or, or a high-density apartment unit with 50 oh, yeah. units in there. Yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, that's, well, that's some good points there. But, I mean, rest assured, like I said, you, most you always it becomes too much to take care of. I, I, I know people that have 7,000-square-foot homes, can't afford them, but they just the kids are gone. They don't need them. They have to uh, go downstairs to flush the hey, some of the bathroom. Can, can you hang with me through the break? I'd love to pick this up the other side of these commercials. Sure. Okay, stay on the line. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. And I got a caller on the line. Caller, tell me your first name. This is Rob calling. Okay, Rob. Sorry, I probably should have recognized your voice. My apologies. That's all right. I haven't so, called in in a long time. So, so we're talking about some of the downsides of owning the big fancy home that proclaims to everybody, "Hey, I'm making it." And I think you had well, some great points. Clean, what about the janitorial? The janitorial. Yeah. Cleaning it, dust. Oh yeah. Carpet shampooing. Yeah. Keep on that. It, no, it, it does. It, it gets to be a bit much. I'm watching my Window mom go boxing. through this right now. She's, you know, she's not living opulently, but she does have a very nice home. Probably, I guess, I don't know, twenty seven hundred square feet. But uh, at, at eighty four years old, and with you oh, know yeah. some of the things that age brings, it's getting away from her quickly. Uh huh. Yeah, look at like uh, window washing and stuff like that. You got to wash the windows, any, and if it needs painting, inside or out. So how property could taxes how, are, property taxes are the thing that really gets me because you know you, you spend you can't spend a long time living in a house like that because if you do, those property tax hindsight they eat up any. Kind of profit you're ever going to make down the road, you know? I mean, when you're paying, I mean, back east, the property taxes are phenomenal, like three times what they are here. And I look at those people and I, I say, how do you even want to live in a home where you're paying $15,000 a year, $20,000 a year on property tax? You know, it just does, it doesn't make sense. So uh, you do the math after 10 years' time. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and, it, and it shifts the whole relationship of who is the property owner? Well, that would be me. No, it's not. Just don't pay your property taxes. I promise you the real owner will show up and kick you out and sell it at auction. How does that work with when you write off your interest? Oh, no, that's interest of property. They say property taxes are write-off. Do you get the full 100% write-off on the property tax? I don't think so. Yeah, I, actually, I don't know the answer to that question. But, but right, in, we'll in the context, out. Rob, in the context of these, these tiny homes... I have seen municipality after municipality put their foot down hard. We do not want these things here. They, they treat them like they're roach motels rather than, than little affordable homes. But for some reason, that, oh, yeah. that, uh, like that NIMBY mindset just keeps them, uh, you know, they're, they're not a well, welcome if, thing. If, if you look at all, all the problems that come along with high-density housing, that gives them job security, gives lawyers job security, judges job security. When you put a high-density home... Or, or these high-density, uh, it compacts people in, 
You know, they, they can get more people living in one area, more taxes on cars. You know, the, the list goes on. More gas tax. Let alone, you know, your your quality of life is just going downhill with all this congestion and traffic and crime. But they're not worried about that. They're worried about keeping the Ponzi scheme of their pension plan and their health care that they get and everything else that comes along with being a government worker in check. That's what they're worried about, making sure that that keeps on going. And then property taxes are pretty much the one thing that's going to guarantee it. I wish people would wake up. Because you go to a city council meeting and you try to shoot one of those high-density houses down, you know what they're going to tell you? What's that? Town salt. Wow. Take care, man. I got to roll. Okay. Rob, thanks for the call. I wish I was feeling more encouraged by what he had to say there, but I think he's dead on right. That bums me out a little bit. I think he nailed it, though. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hello. Hello there. Am I on? You are on. Yes. Uh, in, in Utah, if you don't mind living in a big city, there's a lot of options for uh, cheap, little cheaper homes, like you go over by Price or some of the little mining towns. There's a lot of places you can... And in eastern Utah and all the country now, homes are half of what they are in Salt Lake or so. There's a lot of places you can go and to beat these high costs. And uh, another thing, uh, if you get geothermal uh, system in your house, the heating and the cooling bill is way, way less. Oh, you're talking my language. I love self-sufficiency. And, uh, and, and uh, geothermal is a lot more practical than a lot of the solar business that they're promoting. A lot of people don't realize when they get these solar panels, in the fine print, there's a, a cause after so long, uh, you're stuck with a thing, and there's environmental costs to deal with them. Huh, I'd never heard that. Yes, so, or, what do they is. do? Do they break down or something? I mean, do they like... Yeah, after so long, they're junk, and they got to be dealt with environmentally. And well, these, you, you got me at a loss here because I don't know much about the solar... I don't know much about the solar panels. I understand they've come a long way, but... I mean, I've heard of, like, batteries for electric cars. That can be a real problem to dispose of. I've never heard that about solar panels. Right. But all this solar and wind, it's really not totally practical for, you know, if if you had the right house set up. But a geothermal home with a home pointed in the right direction for the sun, you can have uh, you can have power bills that are 5 or 10 or $20 a month. In, in uh, summer and, and maybe 50 in the winter. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Because I have a home that's that way. Well, now I'm jealous. But, uh, but geothermal is <clears throat> not as popular as it once was. It costs more initially, but why waste your money on all this other stuff? No, an excellent point. Hey, thanks so much for your call. 801-254-1640. we got a couple minutes left here. Um, you know, I'm really not trying to talk people out of their nice home. And if you have a beautiful home and you invite me, hey, Brian, come on over. We'll grill some burgers. I will come, and I will be happy, and I will admire your digs. But something is shifting in my own heart where once upon a time it was like, ooh, I want one of those parade of home style homes. Now I'm finding myself wanting to be a little less owned by my stuff. 
And I'm sure I'm not the only person who has, has hit this point where it's like, it's great to have things. I still love being prepared and, you know, having some stores of self-sufficiency items, you know, on hand. But there comes a point where I really feel like I could be happy or I, or maybe I'm putting it this way. I have been happier with less. And I think it would still be possible to be happy with less stuff. I know this is probably something I should be lying on a couch and explaining to a to a counselor or something, because um, I just sometimes I feel like stuff has a tendency to own us as opposed to the other way around. And I've heard it said, and I think there may be some truth to it, that if you want to, if you're trying to think through something, okay, maybe you're trying to come up with a solution for a problem that you're facing. If there's a lot of clutter, if you're just like encompassed by everything, it's hard to think clearly. And I've heard people say, if you need, if you need to kind of jumpstart your thinking, go clean out a room. Or give stuff away that you're not using. But the the basic line being, get some of the clutter, get some of the stuff out of your way, and it frees up space in which your mind can operate. Now, I know that sounds very metaphysical. You know, you probably would think, oh, you must practice feng shui too. Oh, yes, I adjust the flow of energy all through my home. No, I don't know anything about it. But I think there's truth to the idea that uh, the more encompassed we are by just material stuff, the harder it is sometimes to see the value of things that uh, maybe aren't material, if that makes sense. I mentioned this last week. I'm going to pass this on just uh, just for the sake of argument, um, because I, I know that we're, we're coming into a very intense period of time in America's history. And by intense, I'm referring to the election cycle that is uh, laying out before us and that, uh, that we see uh, starting to shape up. I mean, we're still 15 months away. And it's getting crazy. The intensity of the true believers who want this candidate or that candidate or just want that candidate gone. It's getting pretty crazy. And those who say this is going to be unprecedented, I I think there's every reason to believe it. And I don't use this word lightly or these words lightly, but I think mass hysteria is likely to become the norm the closer we get to that. I don't want to be a part of that. I can't remember the name of the, the Scottish uh, guy who said men go mad in herds, but they regain their their um, thinking slowly and individually. I'm trying to do what I can right now today to make sure that I don't get caught up in the herd mentality. Because I got a feeling that uh, the herd is going to be having a really difficult time coping with this next election cycle. Part of what helps me is to remember that uh, there is more at stake here than just simply material well-being. In fact, there's a lot more at stake here than simply just politics. To paraphrase a good friend of mine, he said, the more I focus on, in his case, spiritual things, the more I focus on you know, the, the things that really have the most lasting importance to me, the less politics seems to matter. I know that's asking a lot, but you know what? I think there's wisdom in what he's saying, and it's something I intend to put into practice. <laughs> 